0: This is WMPG. My name is Dr. Anne, and this is Safe Space, a show devoted to subjects that are hard to talk about because they make us feel vulnerable, afraid, or ashamed. This month, we've been focusing on exploring f- our fears and how we cope with them. We started out by exploring the fear of the dark and being alone at night in the wilderness. We've also explored the fear of being a bad parent, the fear of getting dementia, the fear of working with people that are different from us. My guest tonight is Mike Elkin, and we'll be talking about fear itself. Mike is a senior trainer with Internal Family Systems Therapy, and he's also a marriage and family therapist in Massachusetts. Welcome, Mike. Hi. Hi. I want to start right out by um, asking you about that famous quote from Roosevelt about we have nothing to fear but fear itself, and wondering what do you make of that? What is it about fear that is so powerful that we have to fear it itself
1: well it actually is it's a statement that's hard to argue with Mm -hmm. Uh, in that uh, you know fear uh, essentially generates itself
0: it feeds on itself
1: i have you know i have very sort of specialized ways of looking at fear because fear and shame essentially generate all the problems that i work with Oh. And, uh,
0: how and would they're you mean? very
1: closely related.
0: Okay, well, <clears throat> let's start with the first part. How how does fear generate most of the problems that you work with? What do you mean?
1: Well, because my the more I've worked with people, and especially worked with couples, where people are negotiating their intimate space and therefore are uh, enormously vulnerable to each other, and uh, usually a couple who's having trouble with each other each of them is the most dangerous person in the other one's life, and each of them has more power to cause the other one pain than anyone else. So they fear each other tremendously. Huh. And my way of understanding fear is that it's one of the two basic emotions.
0: Okay. shame. The being other the one other... being love. Oh, the other one being love.
1: And ah. that fear, the presence of fear blocks the awareness of love so the love may be there in fact it certainly is there but it it can't be perceived in the presence of fear
0: so the function of fear is precisely that to block the awareness of it's love it's
1: not well it it's it's not the function in other words it's not well it depends on how metaphysically you look at it or at least how get. it functions it's that's not how what it functions it's there for, right. but it's what it does aha
0: uh-huh. And so once we don't have the awareness of love, we start to behave in relationship to other people in very different ways. You bet. And that's where the problem I mean, just
1: for, Because fear comes in two basic brands. Okay. And there's anger, and that's the fear that someone has harmed you. All right. And then there's guilt, which is the fear that you've harmed someone else. And, for instance, you can love your child very much... But the moment you're angry at the child, you're not aware of that love. I mean, if I stopped you and said, do you love this child? You would say, of course I do. But at the moment you're angry, they're not aware of it, and you're not aware of it. You're you're not feeling that love. You're not experiencing it, and neither is a
0: child. So that's part of why a parent's anger is so frightening to a child, is they experience the absence of love.
1: Because at that moment, the child loses... Their awareness and their, their feeling of the parent's love. Uh-huh. And because, you know, the child is absolutely dependent on the parent for everything, that's obviously a really scary thing. And it's also very hard for the parent to perceive the power of that because they're just a little annoyed or a little irritated. Right. And they, you know, might be very for, experience themselves as being very forbearing. But the child will, it has an enormous impact because it's like snatching away the, uh, the toes that's going into your diving suit.
0: Right, their survival depends on it. Yeah. Yes. So you're saying the, it may be hard for the parent to be aware of it, that just the level of that impact, because they are not experiencing the, that their survival is at stake in the way that the child is
1: right they, they it's 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 just about impossible for a parent to perceive that impact mm-hmm. uh you know it, it it's useful for them to have an intellectual understanding of it because it'll really help them temper their responses and you know also address the parts of them that get triggered and irritated by the child's behavior
0: yeah so you started out though by saying that anger is in itself is an expression of fear so if we stay with this example of a parent with their child and the parent is angry does that mean that I the parents fear precedes their anger Uh, yeah so tell me about that
1: well see my other belief having spent a lot of time examining my own relationships and the relationships of other people is that I've grown to believe that actually our most basic need is not, say, physical survival, but is, in fact, innocence, is to feel like we're a good person and to feel a sense of being morally justified and uh, morally clean.
0: Mm-hmm. And innocent.
1: what I noticed, uh, you know, it's very interesting because I had two sons of my own, which I did... I think, a very poor parenting job with the oldest. And I st- sometimes think that you should be able to throw the first one away as a trial. Oh. But, And then I did a much better parenting job with the second one. And then I married uh, uh, had a second marriage to a woman who had a 12-year-old, very difficult child uh, of her own. Mm-hmm. And I found I was very, very much more effective with that child, even though he was a much more he presented much more difficult behavior than either of my two children. And how come? Well, because his behavior didn't mean anything about me. Ah. Uh-huh. See, I, I, it didn't remind me of me. It wasn't uh, reflecting back parts of myself that I wasn't comfortable with. And I didn't feel that I had generated because I just met him.
0: Right, so it couldn't be your fault.
1: It couldn't be my fault. And so... I wasn't afraid that his misbehavior meant something about me, and so I was able to address his misbehavior from adult analytic parts that had a lot of family therapy training right. and it, you know and so I was able to be generally very effective with him
0: so what you're saying it seems to me, and I can understand this, is that parents' anger at their children is often triggered by a fear say that the child's behavior reflects badly on them is a is a marker of what a bad parent they are
1: yeah actually i would take sometimes i would say that's what generates the anger
0: yes so and i i can understand that so the parent feels like oh no this child is acting out behaving badly embarrassing me this makes me feel bad in other words it's a loss of my innocence right i feel ashamed or bad about myself the bad job i'm doing and that's i'm afraid and therefore i get angry
1: right i mean that's not their process because uh the parts of us that protect our sense of innocence of course keep those thoughts out of our awareness
0: Yes, although I think many parents will say... Although that
1: sometimes they are in your awareness. Of I mean,
0: course. I think a lot of parents feel very aware
1: yeah. of
0: how how embarrassed they are about what's going on and how terrible they feel they must right. be as a parent.
1: And Yeah, and then be, because we are, <clears throat> the way we buy our innocence is with the guilt of others, we then direct our negative attention towards the child.
0: Okay, so wait a second. When you say we buy our innocence through the guilt of others, is it so easily exchanged? Is it so either Well, or? no, in
1: fact, it doesn't work.
0: Uh-huh.
1: See, it's a lot, you know, like, if, uh, if, for instance, you do something which reminds a part of me, of another part of me, that it thing shouldn't be there, and that if I were a good person, that part wouldn't be there or be, wouldn't act the way it does or react the way it does, if you do something that reminds me of that part a part of me will then see you know see that part out there and get angry at you
0: okay so let's make this concrete because it's starting to sound hard to follow okay so if i behave in a certain way that reminds you of something you're ashamed of in yourself yeah like what well anything
1: simple? like you you act in a way that i interpret as meaning I'm unimportant. Ah, okay. You know, you uh don't give me the respect that I feel that I'm due. Right. Well that might remind me of a part that in fact doesn't feel that that does in fact doesn't deserve respect. Mm-hmm. And then I see that part in you. And I, I've been hurt and now a a part of me that feels shamed uh will try to get relief from that feeling of shame by w- giving you a whack
0: i see so making me guilty for making you feel that way
1: right right and, but, and so and, then what you're uh, saying and i so i give you a whack
0: mm-hmm.
1: and f- at the moment i give you the whack i will that that angry part will feel some relief okay but it's like scratching a mosquito bite
0: it just starts to the itch more. the minute
1: i stop whacking you the fact is, I still have that part that feels unlovable. It hasn't gone away. Yes. And I still have the shame for having that part. That hasn't gone away either.
0: In fact, you might have even more shame, because you just treated me badly now to boot. I, <laughs> and now I've
1: whacked you, and now I've lost your love, too. Now you're
0: even worse which off. Which is
1: further proof that I'm unlovable.
0: And when you say whack, I assume you mean
1: Yeah, well, verbally it, can, even. it could be violent, or it could just be I make a subtly nasty come at calling attention to something that I think you're sensitive about.
0: Yes. You know,
1: it can be expressed in a wide variety of stuff. Right.
0: So just to spell this out very clearly, so you're saying people have a core need. Their deepest need is not survival, but to feel innocent or good. Right. And that when anything threatens that, anything reminds them of something they feel bad about about themselves, that's when they become afraid that they're not good And that, although this is unconscious or not even in our awareness. Sometimes it's
1: unconscious. Sometimes it is.
0: Okay. But as we start to feel like, oh, God, that's right. You know, this is a bad thing about me. That's when we're afraid. And we tend to act from our fear either in a way to make someone else the problem. In other words, being angry, blaming it on someone else. Or feeling guilty, which is to think, oh, my God, it's really true. I really am not good. Right. And that's guilt. Uh huh. Okay.
1: And and neither take you anywhere you want to go because guilt, just like fear, doesn't make you safe. Guilt doesn't make you good.
0: Right. So you can atone forever, feeling so guilty, but it doesn't relieve well,
1: you. Well, it, it's not so much that is because when you feel guilty, that does that actually stimulates the parts of you that need to be innocent. What do you mean? Well, if we feel guilty, that that really hurts the parts that need to feel innocent.
0: I see they hate to feel that way.
1: Right. So the way we can solve that problem is to turn the person who we we feel we have harmed into someone who deserves it. Oh. So you know, for instance, look how well we've treated the blacks to make up for slavery. Right. And the the natives. Right. You know, we Uh, that we've had to, as a culture, turn them into people who deserve the treatment they got.
0: Which opens a whole other complex subject. It does. (laughs) But that's
1: what I mean by buying our innocence for the guilt of others.
0: I see. This is WMPG. My name is Dr. Ann. This is Safe Space. My guest tonight is Mike Elkin. We're talking about fear itself and the relationship between fear, innocence, guilt, and anger, all of which are complexly interconnected interconnected. Let me ask you something very different then. This kind of fear you're talking about seems very relationally based. It's about how we feel bad in relationship to someone else. A a, a child, a parent, a a partner. What about fear of things that aren't relational? Like the fear I'm going to have a car accident and die. Or fears, some of the other fears that we've talked about on this show which is fear of getting dementia. A
1: a fear of being physically hurt, fear of losing money, fear of...
0: Yes. What about those fears?
1: Well, the thing is, there's, I think, biological fear. Mm -hmm. And I'm not really talking much about that. It's there. In other words, our our bodies need to survive, and there are parts of us that try to anticipate and avoid danger to our body. Okay. Uh, And that... uh, That has a component. I mean, you can find a lot of, of the the innocent stuff in that, too. And there are also, you know, the fear of being bad will trump very often the fear of your body being hurt. That's why we have heroes.
0: Tell me what you mean by that. Well,
1: in fact, my my stepson uh, was in the United States Marines. Yes. And he was... Uh, he was decorated for bravery, and he, in fact, did things that put his life in danger you know, obvious danger to, accompli- to uh, protect some of his colleagues and to achieve a military objective. Okay. Which proves that the parts of him that needed to think of himself as a good soldier and a good Marine. Were stronger than the parts of him that were afraid for his life.
0: I see. So he would sacrifice his potential physical safety in order to feel like a good person. Right. Hence, your this is how you arrived at your idea that innocence is is more important to us fundamentally, even than physical survival.
1: Right. Yeah. And and you know the the whole concept of martyrdom, the whole all of that is you know is more. Support for that, yes, that, that's right. Now, so, some people,
0: of course, would say that so this there's, is there's
1: physical fear, but I think that that is very often trumped by, uh, you know, by the the fear of not being a good person. Right, the need
0: to the need to be good.
1: The uh, and then the fear of sort of loss of money. Like, you know, if I. I think if people are afraid of losing money, of course, we, we don't like losing our comfort and we don't like losing our freedom. But uh, very often when you talk to people, what, they realize, what, what becomes clear is it's the fear that their loss will be defined as failure and inadequacy and mm-hmm. defectiveness by others.
0: Yes. So, and Mike, I, would, so, I, I want to change the subject for a minute because I want to make this even more real and more personal, uh, which I, I, I you've obviously thought a great deal about this. And I wanted to ask you, how do you know about these things from your own life? What kinds of fears have you personally had to struggle with that that got you thinking along these yeah. lines?
1: Well, first of all, you know, it's really important to understand that therapists are people who need 30 hours of therapy a week. I see. And that's why we do this. <laughs> so... Like every other therapist I know, I became a therapist to heal myself. Uh-huh. And because healing is an exchange. And so everything I give any client of mine, I get. And I need a lot of healing. And I'm also a person who learns best by teaching. So that's why I, you know, that's what satisfies me in therapy, is joining together with somebody in a healing process, and I get healed. Yeah. I. Like everybody, I grew up very afraid, A, because both my parents uh, made themselves feel comfortable by essentially bullying other people. They were both very powerful personalities, and and they scanned the world for what was wrong with it and then tried to fix it. Mm -hmm. And so they did, of course, that with me there newborn, they're, you know, firstborn. Yes. And also, I grew up, uh, I got very tall very early, so I looked older than I was from a very early age. And so, would therefore get, because I grew up in a, you know, in, the tra- in a transitional neighborhood in the Bronx, I got into a lot of physical fights with kids many years older than me, who I was taller than. Because by the time, say, I entered the sixth grade, I was on the 90th percentile in height right. for adults.
0: Right. So you learned about fear in terms of real so physical I was, fear. I
1: lived in fear, and I, and, and I spent, of course, all my time trying to make get myself to feel safe. Mm-hmm. And the things that I did to feel safe uh, always drew toward me what I was afraid of. Yes. that's what they do.
0: Yes. I know you've said that before, that that the ways we try to protect ourselves from what we fear always backfire. They always pull toward us the very thing we fear. Give me an example of that. Uh, What do you
1: mean? Well, we the administration was afraid that there were people in Iraq that would would hurt us, Mm -hmm. and that Iraq was a danger to us. So we sent over all these protectors. And, uh, you know, it's easy to argue that Iraq is much more of a danger to us now and more full of people who want to hurt us and have the ability to hurt us than there were before we sent them over.
0: Yeah,
1: There are no, we have no enemy countries that have uh, atomic missiles now, officially. But because of, you know, reasons that I won't go into, we're, we started an anti-missile missile program. Yes, And I would very confidently predict that within the very near future, we will have hostile countries that have atomic missiles for us to predict. So you're
0: suggesting that, in a sense, our anti-missile missile program draws to itself new missiles. It
1: draws to yeah, and,
0: and what about relationally? How is this and true?
1: Relationally, well, uh, there was a time when I was addicted to martial arts, and I was a tough guy, and I walked down the street uh, projecting how tough I was, And that was responded to by other people who said, oh, that guy thinks he's tough. And they would then act to prove that I wasn't. Yes. Or, uh, you know, if I say to you, for instance, you're angry at me, aren't you?
0: It'll get me there if I'm not yet.
1: Right, and you say, No, I'm not. No, I can hear it. No, what you know, <laughs> within three or four exchanges.
0: <laughs> right, Without, you will be angry at me. Right. This is W F E G and my name is Dr. Ann. This is safe space. I'm talking to Mike Elkin about fear itself. So Mike, to for the last part of the show, I'd like to talk to you about what actually does work. We've decided that most of our protective strategies actually make <laughs> it worse, that working with anger and guilt to try to make ourselves feel like good people don't really work either. What does really what does work with fear?
1: Well, uh, unfortunately, what, what works, uh, one thing that the reason that I'm an IFS therapist and I teach IFS therapy. IFS S- being internal sort of family systems, yes. Internal family systems therapy, which is a system that was developed by Richard Schwartz, Ph.D. Uh, from Chicago, is because what he discovered was a way of rather easily and effectively accessing the resource in us that does work which is fear doesn't protect us and make us safe and in fact what does is is love mm-hmm. and that it's counterintuitive because our first you know fear is has much more energy and is much easier to notice and is much easier to mobilize energy but well, what I've found is when I'm feeling afraid, if I turn gentle attention to the fearful part and just get curious about it, uh, very often that fear just very quickly dissipates.
0: So in other words, if you offer love to your own fear.
1: Right. Now, it's hard to to learn to do that. I mean, you can, and everybody has the capacity to learn to do that. But I also find the same thing is true if I turn, if I just become curious about your fear, and if you're afraid, and rather than reacting to you with protective parts, even whether you're expressing anger or guilt or just fear, if I can address, if I can notice the parts of me that are reactive and protective and ask them to just relax for a minute and distance themselves from me, just like there's a part of me that plays billiards Mm -hmm. and is very interested in billiards. But right now, I'm not thinking its thoughts or feeling its feelings. It's still a part of me, and my guess is it's thinking about billiard strategies as we speak. Mm -hmm. But I'm not aware of that. It's what we call unblended from me right now. The minute I walk into a pool room, it's blended, and I'm it.
0: Right. So you're saying all the other parts of you that are not about, essentially, loving curiosity. You ask them yeah, to kind yeah, of give I, you room. Every
1: part I notice that's reacting in a way that I know isn't going to work. Mm-hmm. <laughs> because I have, you know, a, it, they never have, not once. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so if I just gently request that they move back, I don't try to control them. I don't try to suppress them. I don't try to judge them. I just say, could you just give me a little space? hmm what I find is that as those parts move back, what is exposed is much more loving energy. Just naturally, that's the way that happens automatically. The love is there already, right now, but it's covered by fear. And if I gently address fearful or reactive parts and see if they'll just move back, I'm not asking them not to be afraid. I'm just asking them to right now just give me a little space right under that <coughs> there is love,
0: and that's what the fear needs
1: and when that love becomes apparent, it begins to dissolve the fear
0: so let me ask you this though then, because you suggested earlier that fear is there because of because we're not we don't feel we're good because of a fear of loss right. of innocence, so does love address that core problem of feeling like you're not good?
1: Yeah, it really does.
0: Tell me about that.
1: Well, it, it, it just does. I mean, the presence, what shame is, which is the most painful thing we can experience, is the sense of having our badness witnessed. Mm-hmm. And what real love can do, and I'm not talking about romantic love or special love or I love you because, but what real love can do is it can give the parts of us that feel unlovable the sense of having the parts of them that they think are unlovable and bad being witnessed with love
0: mm-hmm.
1: which is the opposite of shame yes and it's, it is healing
0: so it is we-
1: heals those parts it takes away from them the fears that they have of them being bad and isolated and alone and incomplete and unlovable and defective.
0: So, okay. So, is being witnessed with love the same thing as regaining innocence?
1: As I didn't hear the phrase.
0: Is being witnessed with love the same thing as regaining innocence?
1: Uh, yeah. You know, I never thought of it that way, but that—that's a, a nice way of thinking about
0: it. Because if you're saying that innocence is our core need, and that yeah. being witnessed with love really does—yeah, does... I
1: think I think that's a nice way of thinking about it.
0: Uh huh. Great. <laughs> So if that's what we can offer each other, you know, coming back to where we started, that it's a very provocative way of thinking about a couple's relationship that, in fact, the most dangerous person on the planet is your intimate, your lover, your love, (laughs) because they're the the one who has the power to hurt you the most. And so you're saying that if you are afraid, afraid of losing them for whatever reason, losing their love, that one way to help with that fear is to become curious and loving to your own fearful parts, but also curious and loving to what part in your partner might be fed up with you and thinking of leaving, say. Is that what you mean?
1: That Yeah. That that what happens with couples, and, and not only couples that are having a lot of trouble, but because we have this need, is that all couples are in a moral struggle with each other which means each, each of them is trying to prove to the other and then some witness that they are the more compassionate, gentle, wise, well-meaning, generous. And to the extent they take that contest seriously, they will make themselves and each other miserable.
0: You once said to me that couples only fight about one thing.
1: Yeah. Who is the, the better only, person? The, the, every fight in a couple is about who is the better person. Mm-hmm. And therefore, every fight is is life and death.
0: Every fight is about this, this potential about the, loss of innocence. Yes. Yes. yes.
1: And... And so, you know, I was just finished with a couple who was talking about
0: And we we have to we have about 30 seconds more, Mike.
1: Oh, yeah, they were talking about uh how well each they dusted the living room.
0: <laughs> yes. And it
1: was very, you know, it was very clear to me and then them that this was about who was the better person.
0: Yes. And so it was you,
1: not trivial
0: as it seemed. Indeed, it ties back to something very deep. Yes. Indeed. Mike, we are going to have to stop. Thank you so much. As usual, you've you've offered many provocative thoughts for the night. I appreciate it.
1: Well, provocative are us.
0: <laughs> that anyway, is
1: you. Anyway, uh, thank you very much. I had fun with you, as always.
0: Okay, great, Mike. Thanks to Jen Hodgson for mixing the sound and Maurice Lennon for the music. My name is Dr. Ann. This is Safe Space. If you'd like to contact me to get more information or to suggest a new topic for the show... Email me at drannwmpg at gmail.com. That's dr.annwmpg at gmail.com. Next Wednesday at 7.30 p.m., I'll be hosting Leah Daragon talking about postpartum depression. Coming up next, Money Talks with Allison.